Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a new week and a new beginning. We thank you for your people that surround us with love and encouragement, with examples and help. Uh, Father, we pray today as we study about how to raise our children that you would give us insight and uh, enthusiasm for this task that you set before us, that you would bless us in it, that you would show us your grace and kindness in our children. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many paradoxes in life and in Scripture. Parenting involves knowing what these are and in training our children accordingly. One of the most fundamental paradoxes uh, is life and death. As one person explained, children come into the world thinking life precedes death. You must train this out of them. It is only when we die that life begins. They must die to live in the family, as we, as we all must. They must die to live with their neighbors. They must die to live in a marriage. They must die to rise again glorified. As sinners, as natural rebels... We think that we're God, and we think that the world revolves around us. That's a description of every child. But your child has been given Christian parents who know better. Your fundamental job is to teach them that their hearts and their minds must see things differently. Their their chief end, like yours, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, which will daily require them to die to themselves, which means that you too, as parents, will have to die to yourself. Your children are both sinners and saints. Sinners because they were born with your sin nature, just like the sin nature that you inherited from your parents and ultimately from Adam. But they are saints because they have been made holy by having believing parents. So there's a tension between the two that must be recognized, disciplined, and nurtured. Sometimes good children do bad things. And sometimes bad children do good things. Uh, and so we, we recognize that as we look at, these, at our children, we see both. Sometimes we see uh, very decent, good children, but still sinners, still doing bad things, still selfish, still disobedient. And sometimes we have children that are out of control, what we would think of as bad children. This child is, uh, is out of control and, and totally self-centered and has, a, has an even greater need of us bringing to bear our love and discipline. And those two go together. A piece of the truth turned into whole cloth can really produce some ugly garments. And while it's generally a good thing that a lot of Christians have rediscovered the biblical teaching of the blessing of having many ch- children, and we are all for large families, 
And as Psalm 127, 5 says, happy is the man that has his quiver full of them, referring to children. Nevertheless, more is not always better. Proverbs 15:16, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. So in other words, quantity of children is not the only blessing. In order for quantity to be a blessing, there also has to be quality. There has to be godliness. This is not about just filling the earth, but about filling the earth with a certain kind of children, godly children. So sheer quantity is not a replacement for quality, and to whom much is given, much is required. We don't want to be like that couple uh, who uh, had twins and jokingly said, we gave them biblical names, Jacob and Satan. Um, It's essential that our children, regardless of how many we have, become blessings and not curses to our households. Indeed, they should become blessings and not curses to the world. When God called Abraham and promised him great blessings, including the promise of making him and his children a blessing to the world, that was a conditional promise. It was not just an open-ended promise. Here's what I'm going to do, period, end of sentence. There's an if attached. God didn't tell Abraham he'd bring these to blessings no matter what Abraham did. Rather, God predicated the blessing of Abraham's faith, which was uh, predicated these blessings on Abraham's faith, which was to be demonstrated in his works. So Abraham had to believe God and then act accordingly and then act, uh, act in obedience to God regarding his family. And so God reiterates his promise to Abraham in Genesis 18 and reveals the conditions for the promised blessing. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and righteousness, so that I may bring all these things to pass that I have spoken to him. If and only if Abraham faithfully commanded his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and righteousness, would God make the children of Abraham a blessing to the world? This conditional promise is true for every household. Simply being born into a covenant Christian household has never been and never will be sufficient to secure the promised blessings of God. So what advantage is there? to having been born into a Christian household or a covenant household? The Apostle Paul answers with a resounding much in every way because to them were committed the oracles of God. They have the Bible. They have the Word of God. That is essential. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. It is the Word that's pure and true and sure and everlasting. It is the word of life. And so, if you're seriously ill, living in a hospital offers some tremendous advantages. 
Yet if the doctors and nurses in that hospital are incompetent or lazy and don't apply the available remedies to the patient, the advantage has in some ways become a curse. What a, what a tragedy to think there was the remedy. It was available. It was near. But near isn't good enough. It has to be taken in. It has to be applied. It has to be administered in order to be effective. When our children sin, and of course they will sin, we must be ready and eager to apply the Word of God to them in all of its power. And I wonder, I'll ask you now as as we go along some questions. Of course, we're going to get into later specifics about training and discipline of particular age groups and how that looks. But how often do you self-consciously go to the Word of God in regard to an issue that's in your home? You think about, what does the Bible say here? What should I be teaching here? What are, the, what are the important principles at stake here? Do I instruct my children not just because I said so, but because God said so? Because this is His standard. Because I'm trying to teach them how to think about it. Not just respond to me. I'm not after just children that are making my life easier by doing the things I tell them to do. My goal as a parent is to train them to live Self-governed lives under God. Self-government under God, under His authority, under His Word. To teach them to think about everything that way. And if I'm going to teach them to do that, I have to do that. And more importantly, they have to see me do that. can't just be internalized. So we want to expose and root out the corruption... And so when our children sin, we have to be ready with God's Word, and that will be what brings about the necessary remedy. Now I want to talk about the purpose of the Christian household. Genesis 1.28, when God blessed them, Adam and Eve, He said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You have work to do. I want you to first have children, be fruitful and multiply. And then I want all of you, you and your children, to exercise this dominion over the earth, to rule over the work. So to fill the earth and exercise the dominion over the earth, this was not a job that Adam could do alone, and so God gave him a helper, uh, a helper to create these other helpers, and to train them. Remember, the goal was to expand the Trinitarian communion, the loving communion, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to fill the earth with that. Sin corrupted the household and all the individuals in it, but God purposed for the covenant household to become then the place of remedy. So we have the the initial purpose... Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, exercise dominion over it to the glory of God is the subtext. Sin messes that up. Sin separates us from God. But the household then will also become this place of redemption, the place where this begins to be repaired and restored. And so the original mandate remains the same. In Malachi 2.15, But did he, God, not make them one, husband and wife, 
having a remnant of the Spirit. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. And so we have the opening of the, of the Old Testament with, uh, with God's call for Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God-glorifying children. And then here at the end of the Old Testament, the very last chapter or the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, uh, there is a call here and a reminder that nothing's changed in 2,000 years. Uh, really, uh, 4,000 years at that point. It's reiterated, of course, with Abraham, and then again here at, at the close of the Old Testament, and then again in the opening of the New Testament. John the Baptist, we're told, is called to prepare a way for the Lord, to call to return the hearts of fathers to their children. You see this central thing. It's not, it's not a footnote here. It is central to everything God's doing. It's for particularly fathers to assume this responsibility. Wives or mothers as their helpers are in the same mission, doing the same thing, giving God godly children. R.L. Dabney wrote, Every parent now transmits to the child he loves, along with the gift of existence, the deadly disease of sin. He has conferred on them, unasked, the endowment of an endless, responsible existence. He has also been the instrument, if the unwilling, yet sole instrument of conveying to this new existence the taint of original sin and guilt. Can the human mind conceive a motive more tender, more dreadful, more urgent, prompting a parent to seek for the beloved souls he has poisoned the aid of the great physician? And so, our families are a place of training. God does not simply want to fill the earth. He wants to fill the earth with righteousness. And so in this call to Abraham, and we are children of Abraham, this promise that God makes that he and his offspring, his descendants, would be a blessing to the world, this post-millennial task of blessing and conquering the world, which is, as I pointed out, the original creation mandate, Abraham, faithful in little things, that's how he was going to do this. Not some grand program. It was go home, Abraham, and instruct your family. Not just instruct your family. I like the word that's used here, command your family. Take charge. You're the boss. You have a responsibility. You have a mission, Abraham, that I'm giving you. You go home to your house and see to it that it's implemented at your house. Do whatever it takes. Abraham, you're mine, and everything that's yours is mine, including your children. So you go home and do that, and God says, I'll bring the rest of it to pass. I'll do the blessing. Covenant blessings depend on this parental responsibility being fulfilled. The household is the primary social institution. It's not all-important. It's not self-sufficient, but it is foundational. It is necessary. 
God's churches and societies are made of godly households. Nothing has a greater impact on the future. And so let me say to you parents, you have the power to change the world. You have an enormous amount of power. Not broad power. You don't have power over all the children. You have the power over the children God gave you. In fact, your power is pretty close to absolute. It's the the power that's most akin to God's power on a smaller scale. Now, God makes the family, and he he makes it a, a sort of city or kingdom or government. And so the covenant is inherently familial. In fact, we see over and over in the Bible as God's giving his instructions and promises The promises are given to you and to your children. Ordinarily, children are brought into the kingdom by God, uh, the kingdom of God, by way of the family. That's the ordinary way God does it. The regular way, the routine way, is through the family. Psalm 78, 4-7 describes this role of the covenant community. Notice four generations are mentioned. We will not hide them from our children, that is, the deeds of God, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. For He, has, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commands our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. So God commands you, parents, particularly fathers, to command your children to teach them about God, to teach them about who He is and what He's done, to make sure they never forget it. Why? so they can teach their children, and that, so that those who are not even born yet will also then get this message so that no one forgets it. That's the big picture. When it comes to our children, we give them our name. They belong to us, we belong to God, and therefore they belong to God. This is why they're sanctified or set apart. The Bible says in First. Corinthians 7.14, for the unbelieving husband, in this case if you have one believing partner, a husband or wife, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they're holy. They're set apart, sanctified. And so this is why they receive the covenant sign of either circumcision in the Old Testament or baptism in the New Psalm 128, 1-3, Blessed or happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, and your children like olive plants all around your table. So the blessings that are portrayed in the Bible of the gospel and of, of being in covenant with God and being in this place of life always involve family, always involve Uh, extending this out in multiple generations. Ezekiel 16, 
20 and 21, Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured, false gods. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter that you have slain my children and offered them up to them by causing them to pass through the fire? And so God is bringing this great condemnation. He said, you took children that belonged to me and you gave them to somebody else. And that is not a small matter. Now, fundamental question this morning then again is, are our, are our children sinners or saints? Well, we're all sons of Adam and therefore we're all born sinners. The newborn child is by nature a sinner. And given time and physical ability, they will express that sinfulness just as soon as they can. Maybe as they're laying there wrapped in swaddling clothes, uh, not yet, but they always like to say they may not be saying anything and they're not mobile yet, but they're planning. Okay? And their eyes have landed on something and they're going to check out just as soon as they can get there. And uh, they're going to begin to express this sinful heart rather early. Proverbs 22:15 says, "Foolishness is bound up where, in the heart of a child." That's the problem, and we're going to see as we go through all these lessons, always about the heart, not just the externals. You're bigger than they are, and if you're stern enough and harsh enough and tough enough, you can make them do things. But the goal is going to be to see their hearts change, to see them want to do things, to see them want to adopt the standard, to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the goal. Um, Your little baby has a heart defect that must be remedied or else they will die. What would you do if you had a child with a physical heart defect? you'd go to whatever lengths you could to get that remedied and repaired and fixed. Well, they have an even greater heart defect. And so we shouldn't be deceived by the outward cuteness of, of the child, though it's probably good, a good thing that children are cute, though I'm reminded that probably Hitler and Stalin were cute babies as well. First uh, Samuel 16:7. For the Lord does not see as a man sees; for a man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And we need to be sure when we look at our babies and look at our children, we look past those external things, and we look all the way into their hearts. Um, while our children might learn a particular expression of sin from another child, and so we might say, where did he pick that up? Who did he learn that from? Who, who taught my child to sin? Let me point out, your child's sin ultimately originates in his own heart, and we must never forget that. Again, Dabney writes, It is enough for us to know that God, by his mysterious work of creation and providence, does empower human parents with this amazing result, the origination out of nothing of a new being, and that a rational, immortal spirit. How solemn, how high this prerogative. 
It raises man nearer the Almighty Creator in His supreme prerogative as master of all things than anything else that is done by creatures on earth or in heaven. Angels are not thus endued. The responsibility of this relation is not fully seen by merely regarding the infant as a beautiful animal, organized in miniature after the kind of his parents. It is the mysterious propagation of a rational soul that fills the reflecting mind with awe. The parent looks upon the tender face, which answers to his caress with an infantile smile. He should... Uh, he should see beneath that smile an immortal spark which, ha- which he has kindled but can never quench. It must grow for weal or for woe. It cannot be arrested. Just now it was not. The parents have mysteriously brought it forth from darkness and nothing. There is no power beneath God's throne that can remand it back to nothing should existence prove a curse. Yes, the parents have lighted there an everlasting lamp which must burn on when the sun shall have turned to darkness and the moon into blood, either with the glory of heaven or the lurid flame of despair. Thus Satan saw that humanity had but one head, Adam. By poisoning this, he would taint all the vast future body with spiritual death. Thus he vainly hoped he would usurp the very power, the power of parentage, which God had bestowed to be the instrument of multiplying blessedness, and he would turn it into an inlet of spreading boundless sin and misery. By poisoning the springhead, he would at once poison the whole stream in all of its widening course, until it disembogued its innumerable drops, each drop in the flood, a lost soul, into the ocean of eternity. Thus it is when we thus it is that we owe to this malignant perversion of God's plan of benevolence that every parent now transmits to the child he loves, along with the gift of existence, the deadly disease of sin. These, then, are the two facts which give so unspeakable a solemnity to the parent's relation to his child. He has conferred on them, unasked, the endowment of an endless, responsible existence. He has also been the instrument, if the unwilling, yet the sole instrument, of conveying to this new existence the taint of original sin and guilt. Can the human mind conceive a motive more tender more dreadful, more urgent, prompting a parent to seek for the beloved souls he has poisoned the aid of the great physician. How can you, O Christian, fail to bring your child to the great physician of souls to be healed of the deadly contagion that you have conveyed to him? It is the duty of parents to restrain that sinful nature of our children and to direct them into the paths of righteousness. Again, don't let all don't don't get lost in this without and miss the point. The point is, I'm trying to think about how do I raise my children. I'm going to go home from church and try to raise my children. What is it I'm doing? 
Who am I dealing with? I'm dealing with sinners who need to be right with God. That's the fundamental problem and issue that we're dealing with with our children. It's not about their careers. It's not about uh, other, you know, their awards and their achievements and all those other things. At the center is their relationship with God. If you get all the other stuff right and you miss that, then you missed everything. If you get that right, then all the other stuff will take care of itself. That is the thing you have to keep before you all the time. And therefore, your child is to never be left alone to decide for themselves. Even without the influence of a sinful nature, they are ignorant. They don't know enough to make decisions for themselves. Second, they do have sinful natures and will, event- and, and will inevitably make choices that are rebellious toward God and self-serving. Someone is going to influence and shape your child. It's not a question of if, but who is going to shape your child. Matthew 18.6, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. That wasn't a very nice thing for Jesus to say, was it? Not very politically sensitive. He hurt my feelings. He's driving home a critical point. He said, I'm not playing around here. Proverbs 23, 13-14, Do not withhold correction from a child. For if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Now we'll say a lot more later about discipline. And I know again, you know, all I'm just going to kind of give the big qualification. Everything we're saying here is in the context of everything else the Bible says about loving our children seeking their good. We're not abusing children. We're opposed to any kind of abuse. But I think uh, anybody uh, with any, I'll just say, I was going to say common sense, but I'm not sure it's even common anymore, um, knows the difference between biblical discipline, loving discipline of a child that involves beating his tail end when he needs it because we love him, versus abuse. Again, we'll say much more about that later. There, there is a difference in children. Uh, some children are born into unbelieving households and others are born into believing households. Some children have none of the benefits of God's covenant of grace and others have all the benefits of God's covenant of grace. Romans 3, 1 through 2, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God or the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 15, Paul says to Timothy, from childhood, from the time you were a brephos, a nursing baby, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, you, you've been taught from the time you were a nursing baby the Bible, which is able to bring you salvation, to give you the knowledge and the remedy 
that you need. So while our children are sinners like us, they are also saints like us. They are Christians. They have been grafted into the life-giving body of Christ. Christ, baptism, is the sign and seal of this. They are partakers of all of his benefits, his conditional promises, and communion is the sign and seal of that. Now, it's possible, right, for believing parents, uh, for there to be believing parents, and yet for them to fail to be faithful in the training of their covenant children. When the conditions of God's covenant promises are neglected, not just abused, not openly opposed, you know, you'd ask the kind of person I'm talking about, you'd ask them, do you believe the Bible? Yes. Do you go to church? Yes. Are you trusting Christ for your salvation? Yes. But then when it comes to this issue of am I diligently teaching my children to love God, both by word and deed, because they see me doing it and they hear me doing it, and I'm giving them instruction in the Word of God, that becomes a different matter, you see. But all that's needed here is neglect, a passive approach. This is urgent. You know, you can't, if your child has a heart defect, a passive approach is not going to work. You're going to have to have an aggressive plan. You're going to have to seek help. You're going to have to get informed. You're going to have to go find people that know more than you, and you're going to have to learn. Yes, sir. Yes, David, and we're going to see quite a few others, actually. I'm going to mention a couple of them here at the end. But yes, we have a number of examples of people in the Bible. David, a man after God's own heart, and yet a number of his children were disasters because uh, he, he, David himself had been disobedient in a number of ways uh, that, that I think led to some of that. In fact, I'm coming up with, with uh, an example here. One of David's sons... Um, that we'll mention here in just a second. So our, our children, uh, it's possible, again, for believing parents to fail in the training of their children. When the conditions of God's covenant promises are neglected, we expect to see disaster. So uh, we read of David's son, Then Adoniah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. You got the king, and now one of his sons. Hey, I'm the son of the king. I got money. I'm important. One day I'm going to be king. So he does all this, and the parenthetical, and his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? He was also very good looking. His mother had borne him after Absalom. Or how about the sons of the priest Eli? Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hear, hears it will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to end, for I have told him that I will judge his house forever. Why? For the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. God may be gracious even to the worst parents, and he often is by saving their children, but he doesn't promise to do so. 
He does promise to save children of believing parents who diligently and faithfully raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. Now, I think we're going to stop here this morning. I've got another section, but I don't think I have time to complete it, so this would be a good place to stop. Any comments? Again, we're still laying some foundations here, and I know oftentimes we're anxious to get into the, to the, to the list, you know, the ten things I need to be doing on Monday morning kind of stuff, and how do I handle my two-year-old and my eight-year-old and my 14-year-old, and we're going to get to much of that, but I'd, let's not, it's really important that we, we, we start out with the big picture and the big understanding of what's going on, what the problem is, and what's the nature of our children, and what's the nature of the task, and what are the goals that we have set before us, because it's that big picture that is going to enable us to stay focused on the minutiae on the daily things that can be rather wearisome and daunting and uh, boring and all that. And so we have to constantly remind ourselves that there's something bigger going on than just this momentary confrontation with my three-year-old over whether he's going to pick up the toys or not. That there's something much bigger at stake and something, uh, an opportunity here to make progress and to to make an advance here in this larger, more essential goal. Anybody? Let me comment. We're going to be doing this for several weeks. If you have questions or particular things, and looking ahead, some of it I may already have uh, in my notes and plans to address anyway, but I'd rather you give me your questions and concerns and things you want to be sure we cover so I can plug them in if I need to in the right spot. So uh, write those down for me. Uh, if you just walk up to me and tell me, I might uh, forget. But if you'll write them down or send me an email, uh, I'll try to make sure we, we get to those various questions. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you continue as our Father to instruct us, to discipline us, to train us, to teach us that we're not in charge and that you are. Thank you for church. Thank you for a place where we can come and learn these things together and grow together and walk together. Help us to love our children by loving you first and then showing them what that looks like. So help us now, Father. You know our frailties and our needs, and we long to see our children walking faithful with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.